Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus wanting to speak to him about miracles. But Christ wanted to speak to him about the second birth. And in one sense, he, he changes the subject. In another sense, he doesn't because the second birth, I suppose, is the greatest of all of God's miracles. Remember, the whole purpose John wrote this gospel was so that we might believe. He said there's a lot of miracles he did. But the ones I wrote down, I wrote down for you that you might believe, he said, that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John today, we move into Chapter 3, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It is in this section of Scripture that we find out how to be born again. The meaning and the importance of being born again are the topic of this week's entire study. Let's join Pastor Carl in John Chapter 3 now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 3. The title of this morning's message is Understanding the Second Birth. Now you hear a whole lot today about born-again Christians, but it's really a redundant term because as we'll see this morning, you really can't call yourself a Christian if you're not born again. If you are born again, you are a Christian. If you're not born again, well, it doesn't matter what church you attend, you need to be born again. Someone asked me, Pastor, why do you always preach about being born again, that you must be born again? <laughs> because you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. And so the Lord God allows us to eavesdrop on a conversation that he had with Nicodemus. And it's one of those uh, dialogues that found uniquely here in the Gospel of John. I asked a lady yesterday, I said, uh, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you're absolutely sure that if you're to die, you go to heaven? She said, well, I hope so. I, I think so. I want to tell you, hope so and thinking so is not enough. You need to know so. And of course, you need to know for the right reason. Because many a person thinks they're going to heaven. They think they are born again. But when they meet God in the judgment, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so these next two weeks are very, very important as we look at these 21 verses. Now, this is one of those passages that, in my opinion, every Christian ought to know in their sleep. Uh, you ought to be able to, with your eyes closed, think your way verse by verse, phrase by phrase, so well know this passage that you could explain it to another person. So learn it, take notes. If that's the way you learn, listen to the tape whatever is necessary, but get this passage into your heart. I've had the opportunity on thousands of occasions to take John 3. I didn't have a Bible. I didn't have a tract or anything else, but I had the Word of God in my heart, and I was able to lead people to the Savior. Know it because your degree, the degree to which God will use you as an instrument of the Holy Spirit to introduce people to the Savior is in direct proportion to your willingness to study and show yourself approved. John 3, beginning now in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, um, uh, we speak that which we know and we bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now, Dick Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus wanting to speak to him about miracles. But Christ wanted to speak to him about the second birth. And in one sense, he he changes the subject. In another sense, he doesn't because the second birth, I suppose, is the greatest of all of God's miracles. Remember, the whole purpose John wrote this gospel was so that we might believe. He said there's a lot of miracles he did, but the ones I wrote down, I wrote down for you that you might believe, he said, that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. And so John wants us to read this new gospel that we might have this new birth. So let's get started there in your note-taking outline. I want you to consider three principles about this birth from above. Let's first think this morning about the need of the second birth, the need. Look in verse 1. Now there was a, Pharisee, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Many important facts there. First, he's identified as a Pharisee. Now we don't have any Pharisees today. I'll take that back. We do have some Pharisees today. But we don't have a, a, a body of, of believers uh, or a brotherhood of men, of religious leaders who reigned from the 2nd century B.C. to about 70 A.D. when Titus came in and crushed the city of Jerusalem. Now, in the day of Christ, there was approximately about 6,000 Pharisees. And they were the promoters of strict observance of the law, especially as it related to ceremonial cleansing, uh, to the uh, partaking of certain foods, and especially when it came to Sabbath observance. And so they tended to put the emphasis on the outward to the exclusion of helping people to understand the inward. And they had become deeply prideful. They had a bad case of spiritual pride. Now, the word Pharisee in itself is a Greek term that means a separated one. And indeed, they had become separated from most of the people in both their hypocrisy and in their legalism. And so when Jesus, on another occasion, speaks of the Pharisees, he said, rightly did Isaiah the prophet, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And of course, it was the Pharisees who opposed the Lord Jesus Christ because he revealed their religious hypocrisy and their need for salvation in him. Now, not all Pharisees were lost. The greatest of all the Pharisees 
is without a doubt the greatest, I suppose, of all converts, the Apostle Paul himself. And according to Acts chapter 15, there are a number of other Pharisees who came to faith in the Lord. And here's Nicodemus, though, the one featured in this particular chapter of Scripture. And as we will see, he will later come to faith. This, by the way, I hear people say all the time, John 3, that's a record of Nicodemus' conversion. No, it's not. As we read through it, he is not converted here. Jesus will accuse him of still being in unbelief. But before we're done with this gospel, the seed that is planted in this man's heart will take root and he will meet the Lord. So he's a Pharisee. Secondly, we're told in this verse, he is a ruler of the Jews. That meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men. It would have the prestige of being on the Supreme Court of the United States. They were the tribunal in Israel that had jurisdiction over every living Jew in the world. Seventy persons, a great place of prestige. And it appears from this passage that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had distinguished himself, not just among the 6,000 plus Pharisees, but even amongst this small elite group known as the Sanhedrin. Because he comes on behalf of them. Notice he does not say, Rabbi, I know that you've come from God as a teacher, but we know that you've come from God as a teacher. He uses the first person plural pronoun, indicating that as a member of this ruling sector, he had distinguished himself to the point where they had chosen him to go and speak and confront Christ, speak to Christ and confront him. Now, when we come down to verse 10, we learn something else about this man. He's called the teacher of Israel. Now, some of your translations say a teacher. The New American Standard is absolutely correct in that it's more literal here. The article is present in Greek. It's the teacher of Israel. He is a teacher of teachers. Verse 2, this man came to him by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's been a whole lot of ink spilt as to why the Lord Jesus Christ uh, met this man at night and why Nicodemus chose to come at that time. Maybe he, he came by Christ, it's argued, because the Lord was surrounded by the multitudes throughout the day, and this is one of the few times you could get a private conversation with the Savior. Some argue that maybe he came at night because it was common for teachers in the cool of day to have protracted discussions. Some think he came at night because he feared public identification with this miracle worker and teacher from Nazareth, and so he came in the cloak of darkness. Some say, well, John is using a double entendre here, that he came by night to describe the fact that he is himself in spiritual darkness. Uh, some say he, he came by night because it's nothing more than a historical fact that's noted here in the text. The fact is, we don't know why he came by night. And to be dogmatic on any reason would be foolish, because God doesn't say. But nonetheless, he did come by night. And it's obvious that Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, came to this one whom he respected as the teacher from Galilee. Now, he saw miracles fall from the hand of Christ. So he knew that this was no ordinary teacher. If you remember last time we studied chapter 2. In chapter 2 we saw the very first recorded miracle of Christ, turning the water into wine. And then at the end of that chapter, in verse 23, it notes that there were many other miracles that he did. We're not told what those were, but he did a number of other miracles there during the Feast of Passover. 
And there was a man, Nicodemus, who had witnessed those miracles. And so the word now is connected to chapter 2. The chapter division sometimes can be harmful, and this is a good case in point. And he's not like the other Pharisees. He's really coming seeking. Uh, some of the other Pharisees later on will conclude that the miracles he does comes from the power of the devil. But this Pharisee says, no, he's come from God because no one can do these miracles that you do unless God with, were with him. At this point, he just understands him as a teacher come from God. Later, he will understand that this is God come to teach. Now, I want you to see three things about why it's so important to have this new birth. First, you need the new birth, Jesus argued, to see the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't waste a lot of time with courteous exchanges. The Lord Jesus plunges right into the heart of the subject. And so being the great teacher that he is, he relates something that's very familiar to Nicodemus and really to all of us. He moves to the subject of birth. And he uses physical birth to teach us something about spiritual birth. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, that's a formula he uses four times in this passage. It's a very important introduction. It'd be like me saying, listen, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, don't miss this. Open your ears up. Listen very, very carefully. The Lord doesn't use that phrase much in his public ministry, but when he does... We ought to perk up. We ought to sit up in our seats and pay very close attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, underscore that word again. Some of your translations say from above. And which is right? Well, they're both right. Actually, the Greek word carries both nuances. But if you want to give a one-for-one -one word correspondence in, in the translation process, you have to choose one. He's speaking about being born twice, and he's speaking about being born from above. And what he's telling me here is that this new birth, since it is from above, it doesn't come from self. It's not some kind of self-reformation. Oh, it leads to a reformation. If it's authentic, it will literally change your life. But it doesn't begin with you. It's not turning over a new leaf. It is a work of God. It's not a new beginning. It's not a birth from below. It is a birth from above, and it begins with God. He takes the initiative. Now, what does he mean when he says that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? Circle that word see, would you, there in your text. This is a term that is speaking about spiritual sight, about having your spiritual eyes opened. How do you know? Because that's the way John uses the term. For instance, when you come to John chapter 9, the Lord Jesus is going to heal a blind man, and the Pharisees did not want to believe the irrefutable proof that was before them that day. Everyone knew that this beggar had been blind since birth. And so the Pharisees demanded, who opened your eyes? And of course, he said, the one who opened my eyes is Jesus. But they wouldn't accept that. They said, no, Jesus is nothing but a sinner. Give glory to God. Who opened your eyes? And he said, Jesus did. And of course, when we come to the end of that discourse, the Lord will say of those, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see, quote unquote, may become blind. There are religious people in this world who are blind and they will not admit to it. 
And so the light of the truth just makes them blinder. No one is so blind as the person who will not see. Now, please understand that spiritual truth cannot be grasped by the natural, fallen, unregenerate mind. Paul will say to the church at Corinth, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. There was a time when you and I simply had the things of nature, those things that we were born with, those capacities that came at physical birth. And because we're born in sin, because we chose to sin in and with Adam, because we're sinners by nature, by choice, by birth, we cannot see spiritual truth as God would have us to see it. In Genesis 2, remember what God warned? He said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. There's the good promise. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Now the Hebrew word for death means to separate, to sever. And immediately, the day they ate, they died. They were severed from the life of God. They began to corrupt physically and instantaneously on that day, they died spiritually. The light went out. They lost the intimacy with God and they lost the ability to really see and understand as God would have us to see and understand spiritual truth. So while we can't, while we can't see spiritual truth with our physical eyes um, or spiritual death with our physical eyes, the Lord illustrated this problem of death with this couple. So he says, the Bible says, Genesis 3, 24, he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. Those are those holy angels. We'll be studying them this Wednesday night. And the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, the tree of life, had they eaten of it in their sinless state, they would have been immortal. They would have been forever confirmed with the Lord. But they listened to the tempter. They didn't listen to God. And so as an expression of the grace of God, God placed holy angels with a flaming sword of fire because God knew that had they eaten in their sinful fallen state, they would be forever confirmed in their sin. And so man died that day. He died a spiritual death. He lost his capacity to see and to have intimacy with God. And so because we're spiritually dead, we're born, the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 1, in our trespasses and sins, because we're spiritually dead, we are spiritually blind. Now, you see this all the time. You talk to people about the Lord and their need to be born again or to trust Christ as their Savior. What do they do? They immediately go into their religious heritage. Oh, I've been confirmed, or I've been baptized, or my daddy was a preacher, or my grandfather was a preacher. And, and Jesus wants them to see something that they really can't see unless God opens their eyes. Now, what a blind man needs is more than light. He needs sight. Just exposing a man to the light will not make him see. A man cannot reason himself into the kingdom of God. This is a birth that comes from above. This is a supernatural work of Almighty God. And education alone won't help you to see it. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, a very educated man. He would be considered uh, someone, uh, a graduate of the greatest theological institution of our day, a double or maybe triple PhD. But that was not enough. God needs to open your eyes 
to see the kingdom of God. Notice how the Bible describes us before we're saved. There is none righteous, not even one. You think you're here today and good enough to get into heaven? Here's God's evaluation. None righteous, not even one. Because the standard that you need to get into heaven is perfection. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. There's none who understands. There's our spiritual blindness. There's none who seeks for God. That's why the Lord Jesus will say in John 10, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, God wants to teach us, and he doesn't teach a select few. He wants to open your eyes. Now, I have some hyper-Calvinistic friends who think that God opens the eyes just of the elect. Listen, God wants to open everyone's eyes because he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. World means world. When God says he so loved the world, he means everybody. And when he will later say in John 16, for he, the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will convict the world. That's everybody. of Sin and righteousness and judgment. So at some point in your life, God will work. Now, God gives all men some light, general, general revelation. And when you respond to that, God gives you more light. But I want to say, if you're here today, it's not by accident. If you're here today and you don't have the assurance that if this were your last day on earth, that you would absolutely go to heaven, it's the providence of God that brought you here. It's a loving God wooing you because you didn't come here on your own. The initiative didn't begin with you. It began with God. And so when God works, don't put him off. Don't say, I don't have time for this. There's an urgency to the gospel. And if you have ears to hear today, hear. The Bible says today is the day to be saved. Don't harden your heart. And so every unsaved man is walking in darkness. Now remember, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he's teaching and speaking to a highly educated man, the teacher of Israel. The problem with Nicodemus is not that he was blinded here but that he was blinded here. You can be sitting here today with perfect 20-20 vision and be blind at the same time. And a blind man would be foolish to say that the light is not real. Or an atheist to say that what I am preaching is meaningless, some kind of fanaticism. That would be very foolish to deny the light. Now, you may not be able to see the light, but your denial of the truth doesn't change the truth. Truth does not change because people refuse to embrace it or obey it. Truth is truth all by itself. And so Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand that unless you have a birth from upstairs, you can't see God's kingdom. Now, the scripture is very clear that the moment you have this birth from above, in a second's time, you're made alive on the inside. The spirit of God comes to inhabit your soul. And you have a new ability to understand and comprehend spiritual truth that you didn't have before. And so, Nicodemus, if you really want answers, you need to see. And you can only see if you're born from above. This was a man who was lost. Look at verse 4. That he is still blind is apparent. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? The kind of question, of course, he asks reveals a lot about his spiritual state. One, there's an openness here because he doesn't ask why. He asks how. 
The Lord obviously had struck a chord in this man's heart because he knew somewhere deep down inside the religion that he had didn't really satisfy. And some of you have tried religion and you've rejected Christianity, not because you rejected true Christianity, but a poor caricature of it. What you were rejecting was not the truth very often, but a misrepresentation of the truth. And this man deep down inside knew what he had didn't satisfy. And so he's asking and inquiring how here. Rabbi, how on earth can someone go through the birth process again? What do you mean born again? I don't understand. Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. Nicodemus is talking about physical birth. And so one, he wants you to understand you need the second birth to see. You'll never understand as God would have you to understand unless you're born from above. Secondly, you need the second birth to enter the kingdom of God. First, he said, see, I hope you circled that. Now in verse five, circle the word enter. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He just said you couldn't see, understand, and comprehend it apart from the new birth. Now he says you can't go to heaven apart from it. That's pretty serious. Now, by the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus did not mean some kind of political kingdom that the zealots of his day wanted him to bring. No, a Jew with the background that Nicodemus had, and obviously he knew the scripture because the Lord appeals later on in this conversation to his knowledge of scripture. He knew that there is a future dimension of the kingdom, something to come, that, when a, that in a future way, a person could have favor with God forever in what the New Testament repeatedly refers to as heaven. That the kingdom of God is a reference in the future is clear from the Gospels. Let me read a few verses. Mark 9. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into the hell, into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Now, I've preached a sermon on that. You know, he's not literally referring to cutting off your, your hand or your foot. If you cut off your right hand, you got your left hand to execute the sin with. If you plug out your right eye, you get your left hand, left eye in which to do it. He's dealing with mortification, not mutilation. A seriousness about sin, because before we're done, he's going to argue, we'll look at it next week. Some of you here today won't become saved because you love sin. You love sin too much. And it's your love of sin that will keep you from a need for the Savior. And so he goes on and he says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. So he's talking about entering into the kingdom of God versus entering into hell. And so Jesus makes a parallel between the kingdom and heaven. There's a future dimension to God's kingdom, but there's also a present dimension to the kingdom of God. When you come to Luke 17, 21, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God that is in your midst or within you. In describing the present dimension of the kingdom, Paul said, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a dimension of the kingdom that can be experienced today. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 877- 787-7478 and requesting program John 007. 
If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures. Search the scriptures.